I want to start talking today about the idea of conviction and not like when you do something wrong or, you know, there, you know there's a conviction or whatever. No, a, a conviction meaning a, a strong persuasion or belief. And we're all operating on some convictions. You know, you probably have some convictions for your family or maybe the kind of maybe friends you want to be, the boss, employee maybe you want to be, the kind of a spouse or husband or son, daughter, whatever, all of those things like that. And then there are certainly political convictions, things that we absolutely think should or should not be happening in our country and the world. And, and ultimately, though, what faith is, faith specifically in Jesus, it is a conviction. It is a strongly held belief that who Jesus is, is that he is who he says he is, that he is the Lord of life. He is the Son of God. He's not just a prophet or a, or a wise person or somebody that came to point us to God. He is God, and that the Word of God, the Bible, is God's revealed truth to us for mankind. I mean, we know about Jesus because of the Bible, and so, you know, as a Christian believer, one of the convictions we should have, one of the persuasions, is that we believe that the Bible is true and worth following, both the parts that we love, the parts where we love to say that he's working all things together for our good, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Those things make me feel good. But then there are other parts that challenge me, that force me to grow. And so we need to have a conviction as people. And I just want you to know that as a church, I mean, that's the kind of church that we are, that we hold seriously the commands in Scripture. Matter of fact, Jesus himself says it this way in John 14. He says, if you love me, You'll be really nice to everybody. That would be the gospel of 2024, wouldn't it? If you really love me, you would be nice. Or if you really loved me, you would be accepting of all. No, that's not what Jesus says at all, actually. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And so then we need to be good students and stewards of Scripture to know what those commands are because we can be going against the commands of the very Jesus we claim to love. And so just to let you know, as a church and, and as, as a pastor, as your pastor, that I take the Bible very seriously. And you may say, well, I hope so. Well, yeah, I, I do hope you hope so, because a lot of people in our secular age do not. We like, you know, many people like to pick and choose things. Now, in our series, we're talking about surrender, surrender 24, and we wrapped up last week if you weren't here with this idea that surrender does not always mean to like wave the white flag militarily. Now, sometimes surrender can mean maybe giving up or giving in, but actually a lot of times biblical surrender, surrendering to God may also mean uh, giving or, or starting and stopping something. You might need to start something or need to stop doing something, or maybe it means going or staying. Abraham was called to go, to leave his family, and certainly sometimes it can mean leaving behind or taking with you. And so part of the Christian walk and experience is seeking the Lord with a surrendered heart, saying, what do you need me to do? Do I need to give up something? Or do I need to start doing something? Do I need to take something with me? Do I need to stop going in this direction? What do I need to do? And so surrender can be a lot of things and not just giving up. Well, our surrender topic today, and the reason I said that about conviction is because I take the Bible seriously, that means that as a church, we cannot just talk about the parts that we only like and the sermons that tend to just encourage us and make us feel good. So if you're a guest today, I am so glad that you're here, but today's going to be a challenging message. 
And this is one of those ones that honestly, as a, as a pastor, as a person, I don't like to talk about because of all the context that comes with it. But today's surrender is biblical tithing. And somebody goes, I knew I shouldn't have come to church today. It was cold. It's going to be a nice sunny day. I had every reason to do. Well, and I get it. I get it. But because we take the Bible seriously, why should we and why do we need to talk about money? Well, here's just three really quick reasons why. Number one, Jesus taught much about money. Jesus did, the one that we claim to love and serve, the reason we're here. Matter of fact, out of the 38 parables that Jesus told in the Gospels, 16 of those, more than any other specific thing, 16 of those parables are about money and possessions. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of 10 verses talks about money, a total of 288 in all. And how about this for a last one? The, the Bible says more about money than any other thing. So if you were to take the entire Bible and all the verses that it would contain and break those up into categories, you would equal that with about 500 verses on prayer. And prayer is super important, as we all know. We love to talk about prayer, but only about 500 on prayer. And if you take all the ones that talk about faith, there would be a little less than 500 on faith. And we love to talk about faith, big faith, faith that moves mountains. Faith's a big deal. But in the Bible, it talks about money in 2,300 different verses. And so what we're doing today is we're going to look at the first 1,500 of those verses. We're going to be here until Wednesday. It's going to be great. I hope you brought your lunch. Did you get the memo? It's all in the newsletter. It's, it's going to be fantastic. No. So what I want to do, because I understand this is a tough topic, but we are talking about it because it has to do greatly with surrender. And so I want to start by trying to maybe uh, disengage some of our negativity that we often bring about money because none of us likes to talk about finances in the world. And we certainly don't like to often talk about finances in churches. There's a lot of good reasons for that. So I want to try to maybe dispel a few things before we go any further. The number one thing starting here is that it's often believed or often even been taught that tithing is the Old Testament law. Tithing is in the Old Testament law, and we are no longer under the law. Now, being under the law, what that would mean for a lot of us is that if you were a Jew uh, before Jesus Christ and you were trying to live according to the law, there were a lot of things you either could or could not do, and one of them, as an example, is you could not eat pork. But guess what? Some of you had bacon this morning, and guess what? God still loves you. There's no curses on your head, Right? Well, because we're not under the law when it comes to our dietary restrictions. That's because God answered all those questions with Peter. There's a story about it in Acts. You can go look at that. Well, then a lot of people say, well, tithing is, is really worked out in the law in you know, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Exodus, things of that nature. And that is absolutely true. Tithing is talked a lot about in there. Tithing means a tenth. But that is not actually true, though, that tithing is attached to the law. It existed long before. And I'll give you two brief examples. First, in Genesis 14, we have a story with Abraham. Abraham has just recently won a great battle against some who were coming to attack his, his land and his possessions and things of that nature. So he goes out and he, and he defends them. And this is where our story here picks up. Genesis 14, starting verse 17, says, After Abram returned from defeating Ched, Ched, Cheddar, Cheddar Lamar, I don't know that. Anyway, we all get it there. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the Shava Valley. That is the king's valley. Here's the, here's the key character, verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. So he was both a king and a priest. Who else in Scripture is talked about as being a king and a priest? Sunday school answers only. 
Jesus. That's right. Jesus is both king and priest, right? So here's this Melchizedek guy. He blesses him and blesses Abraham when he says, Abraham is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to him. In the key line here, and Abraham gave him a tenth, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. Now, this Melchizedek guy is a really fascinating picture. He's only talked about here, extremely briefly, as this priest king. And then we has a brief mention, I think it's Psalm like 110. But then the author of Hebrews makes a comment about Melchizedek. He says, well, Melchizedek had no line. He had no lineage. He had no beginning and no end. And so this has led most Christian fathers and believers to come to kind of two either parallel conclusions. Either A, this Melchizedek, a king priest, is either a representation of Christ, so we see that line of this kind of representation of Christ, or he is actually a pre-incarnate Jesus. Now, pre-incarnate means before the incarnation, before Jesus took on flesh, and this is just a Christian theology that we see worked out in the early church because there are several times where the Lord would show up. He shows up to Joshua in different times like that, and so we could say, well, man, that was Jesus. Jesus was showing up on earth. It's not the first time that he you know, popped into existence, wasn't in the first century. That's why we have always had this theology of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, right? Well, a lot of people believe that this Melchizedek guy was Jesus. He, he, was, he was representing what he would eventually be, this, this priest king. So Abraham comes to this priest king who blesses him, and he gives him a tenth of everything he owns. And so that's the birthplace of the tithe, the tenth. The father of faith, Abraham, introduces tithing to everybody who would follow after him. And guess what? Abraham is our father of faith. So not just at Abraham, though. There's one quick other story. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. So if you remember, Jacob had stolen his brother's blessing. He dressed up like his brother, put on like goat skin, which I'm just thinking like Esau had to be the hairiest dude for goat skin. Have you seen a goat? It's like they're made out of wire brushes. What did Esau look like, right? Anyway, but so he put on like this goat skin and he's like, oh, it's you, my son, hey, you know, Esau. And so he blesses him. Esau finds out. He's like, I'm going to kill my brother, Jacob. And Jacob runs away. And as he's on the run, he stops at this place and he falls asleep and he has this powerful dream. And in the dream, he saw a stairway to heaven, not the stairway to heaven song. It very well could have been playing. I don't know. It's a great song. But in that moment, he saw an actual stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending and descending on the stairway. And so when he wakes up, this is what he says. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, this is Genesis 28, by the way, he says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, what an awesome place this is. This is none other than the house of God. He names it Bethel. That's what Bethel means, house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob made a vow. He said, if God will be with me, because he's on the run, remember, he's, he's escaping from his life, doesn't have anything to his name. If God will be with me and watch over me during this journey I'm making, if he provides me with food to eat and clothing to wear, and if I return safely to my father's family, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone, he sets up a marker, will be set as a marker, uh, will be God's house, and I will give you a tenth of all that you give me. And so the two kind of fathers of what eventually becomes our Christian faith start this idea of when God brings blessing to us 
we return it back to him out of recognition that he's the one who gave it to us in the first place. And so that's where the tenth, the tithe comes from. And so we can't make the argument, oh, it's just an Old Testament, it's just an old law thing. Uh, yeah, it's certainly in the law, but because they were copying what they had already had the father of faith, Abraham, and then Jacob do. So that's the first thing. Number two, well, the New Testament doesn't say anything about giving a tenth. And you were right. You can read from Matthew to Revelation, and it wouldn't say anything specifically about a tenth, a 10% of anything like that. And you would be absolutely correct. And my argument to that would be, and most arguments to that would be, is that, well, number one, the very first Christian converts were Jews. And the Jews had been taught over the last 2,000 years since the time of Moses and since the time of Abraham that you give a tenth back to the temple and back to the Lord. And so this would have been heavily ingrained in their heart and mind as faithful Jews. And so even when they began to follow Jesus, they didn't leave all that stuff behind. If you remember correctly, God had to come to in a dream to Peter and say, Peter, hey, by the way, you can have bacon now. But the point, though, of Jesus coming is not to crush and abolish the law. We get that wrong. Jesus, the scripture says, is the fulfillment of the law. An example of that is this. In the law, in the Ten Commandments, which includes the law, the Ten Commandments says, thou shalt not murder, right? We love to put that in schools. Well, what did Jesus have to say about that, though? When Jesus comes, he didn't say, I have come to abolish the law. Jesus says, no, I have come to fulfill it. The law ultimately points to me. I want to call you to an even higher standard. I say that even to think of someone with hatred is to murder them in your heart. Oh. So Jesus didn't come and say, ah, that law, terrible. Jesus was like, no, the law was to point to me. I am its fulfillment. I am calling you higher. Now, how the first century Christians viewed this then is very evident in Acts 2. And while they did not say, and so all the early Christians continued giving a tenth to the temple, even though that's what they did, even though they continued to go to temple, most of them, until the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, this is what it says in Acts 2 that the first generation Christians did. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and there were many wonders and signs that were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. 45, they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any as they had need. So, so I just want to say, because I've heard this argument actually, and I'm not trying to be like, ah, I got you. What the first-generation Christians did, if we want to be authentically first-generation Christians like they were, when somebody came up in need and there was no money to give, they're like, well, I got some land to sell. I'll sell it. Far more than 10%. Far more than 10%. Why? Well, because they had heard Jesus say things like, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, you have hatred in your heart. You have murdered them already. Much higher standard. And so we then, as, as contemporary Christian believers, that should not have changed for us. We should be the most generous people on the planet. Now, there's a lot of good news in that Christians, on, on average, throughout history, have absolutely been the most generous people on, on the planet. Why? Well, because it is where our faith started from. It was always about generous. It was always about giving. And so we have always been that way. The problem is, though, is we continue to become more secular in our culture. As God falls away, guess what also falls away? And, it's, and it's, it is data, it is fact. When a culture becomes less 
When a culture becomes more secular, generous giving goes down on all accounts. Secular people do not give like Christians do, which actually is good news for you because you do not need to listen to the lies of our culture that churches and Christians are all about getting, taking money and all that. Absolutely not. The average Christian believer who goes to church regularly outgives their secular counterparts by about four times to both, to both religious organizations and non. We outgive everybody. Well, why? Because that's always been our heritage. We are, we are giving people. We are giving people. So, Christians have always been the most generous people in the world. All right, number three. Another thing that often is said is, well, I don't have to give to the local church as long as I'm being generous in my everyday life. And that kind of comes down to what it says. It's trying to find loopholes and to not having to, to regularly give, be faithful in giving, and I get that. Um, but Jesus, there's the story that Jesus was having an argument with the, the Jewish leaders at one point, and he makes a comment uh, about, about giving. This is what it says here. We read it, Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. <laughs> Jesus, don't play no game. Hypocrite! How would you feel if, like, in an argument, they were like, you're a hypocrite. It was just like, dang, bro. No wonder they were like, we got to kill this dude. He's mean. Anyway, he was telling the truth, though. All right. He says, you pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin. And as I read this, I realize, ain't none of y'all brought me a tenth of any Italian spices. <laughs> where's, your, where's your spice rack, bro? It's like, man, I just got this new burger bomb thing. It's like, well, where's that 10% at, you know? Number one, I'm just kidding. That's not how it works at all. The only 10% I'll take will be a Chick-fil-A. If you want to buy 10 chicken strips and the church will take one. I mean, that's fine. And if we all buy chicken strips, that's a lot of chicken strips for the house. I'm kidding. You're not tithing to me anyway. That's not how it works. But Jesus is talking about that you pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They were, they were fine to make sure that they themselves and everybody else was, was tithing on everything, but then they were skipping out on the important things that God really cares about, which is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, but here's the key, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. He did not say, look, again, Jesus did not come to turn it all up on its head. He came to be the fulfillment of, but he says, you should have been doing that. You should have been giving to God's house, but while not neglecting those other things too, your heart still wasn't in the right place. And so that just, it just doesn't, that's not going to be backed up in scripture. And look, I know sometimes it makes you feel good. Like I give to people when they, when they need it or family. The problem with this is you're still getting to be in charge of where your money goes and when you get to be generous. And I think if you were to look at it strategically, it's actually not very often. It's not a discipline generosity. Number four, this one probably is the most common that you hear, at least in popular culture. The church just wants my money to make someone rich. You know, I actually hate talking about money because I always feel like, well, of course I have a vested interest. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, but the, the truth is, is yes, there are always bad actors. But I want to I'm going to give you an illustration that hopefully kind of helps us understand this point better. I'm sure you've been hearing in the news recently that on January 5th, a Boeing 737 had what they call the, the plug door came out of the plane while it was in the air. The, the, the force of the depressurization was so strong, it, like it ripped some dude's shirt off. 
wild. Now, nobody was ultimately um, significantly injured, and you can actually see a picture of it right here behind me. I mean, it's, it's a dramatic thing. I mean, imagine if that was your seat, not the emergency row I want to sit in, right? And so what that often does is when you see this, because it's sensationalized, and then it becomes like this huge investigation, they're grounding like entire fleets of 737, it's like, and, and if, you are, if you have a fear of flying, your mind says this, I knew it. I knew it. Those things are death traps. There's little tin cans being shoved through the air at 500 miles an hour. I would rather row myself across the ocean than fly. And I get it because that's scary. Like that, that can give you some serious PTSD, man, if you were sitting in that seat. Hey, did you know that every day there are approximately 100,000 flights in the world? That at any given time, right now, right this very moment, there are well over a million people in the sky. Like, if there was some cataclysmic event that wiped out every human being on earth, there would still be well over a million people still alive because they're flying above our head. Isn't that crazy to think about? The modern world is crazy. So that means then, since January 5th, since that, that Friday a few weeks ago, there have been about 800,000 non-accident flights that you didn't hear about. Ain't none of y'all waking up the news like, how many landed safely today? How many people are okay? Did you know statistically flying is one of the most safest places, safest ways to travel? It is far safer than you getting in your car and trying to type on your phone and look at Facebook. Far safer. Now, when accidents happen, they're often bad and scary, absolutely, but more people die from car wrecks than often does from plane traffic accidents. It's one of the safest ways to travel. So what happens, though, is, is because we live in a world of sensationalism, when one bad thing happens, we live on that like fear fuel for six months, not regarding that in two weeks, well over a million flights happened, that nothing extraordinary happened. They took off and they landed and everybody went home and didn't think about it ever again. And the same thing happens with the church. Are there pastors and leaders of nonprofits that are becoming outrageously wealthy? Yes, there are some that will try to convince you to buy their plane. And matter of fact, on your giving app, there is now a plane fund that we were just kidding. <laughs> just trying to always cut the, cut, cut the air, you know? But, but I just, if there's any kind of credibility that I hope I have with you, let me just maybe speak not as a pastor for a second, but as a person. I've grown up in the church. I have seen some of the worst that the Christian church has to offer. If I were to tell you stories, possibly it would be worse than most of you, to be honest. And I've also seen the best. And over the years, I have went to school with, studied with, talked with, shared with, know of so many godly pastors who, listen to me, are highly intelligent, are driven, and are significantly underpaid for what they do. That 99.9998% of churches are not out there making a wealthy pastor. More than likely, they're probably underpaying that pastor, but it doesn't matter because that pastor is being obedient to the calling that God has on their life. And so it's easy to look at the one, the one that's on TV or the one that you've heard about and all these things, like, oh, look at that. They're just talking about money again, trying to make the pastor rich. Possibly. But you were overlooking the thousands. You know, it's like when a pastor falls in an affair or something like that. It's like, see there, I knew it. They're all a bunch of perverts. 
I'm sure some of them are. As is, that happens in every area of life. But what you're not reading in the news of is the pastor who faithfully loved his wife for 60 years and retired with zero problems. Faithfully served God his whole life. We don't sensationalize, you know, that's not what we want to read in the paper. So I just keep that in mind. Really, with any church ministry, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't just, you know, you shouldn't look into things and absolutely all that, and the church shouldn't be responsible. I just want to tell you that at the end of the day, that's a lie of the enemy. And lastly, this might be helpful for you, is that when we tithe, we are not tithing to the pastor, to the leaders, even to the church. When we tithe, we're tithing to Jesus. That's our responsibility. When somebody handles that incorrectly, curses on their head. But that doesn't mean that you get to choose because really what you're choosing is curses on yours by not being obedient. I know this is hard stuff today, guys. Lastly, on this note, I did want to read this. Obviously, in our world, because there's so much negativity that surrounds that, and I know it can seem like I'm trying to speak from somebody because I do work full-time for the church. I do pick up my salary from the church. This is how I make my living. But this is not something that has only been invented for the last few hundred years as churches have grown larger or whatever. This isn't an American idea. It's a biblical idea because this is what Paul the apostle, the first real missionary, said, he says, don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat food from the temple and those who serve the altar share in the offerings of the altar? Talking about in the Old Covenant, Old Testament. He says, in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. So that's where that precedence has come. That is a part of Christian tradition since day one. All right, so let's take a brief 10,000-foot view over what the Bible really teaches us about tithing and offering. Number one, our use of money is the most reliable external indicator of where our heart is. How we spend our money, how we handle our money, how we think about and feel about our money is the most reliable indicator of where our heart is. Now, where would we get an idea like that? Well, we get it from Jesus. He says in Matthew 6 in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moth and the rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. And here's the key line. For where your treasure, your possessions are, there your heart will be also. See, biblical giving, or giving from the biblical perspective, it's all about vision. What I mean by that is, you either have a vision for your kingdom, or you have a vision for God's. You know, you're either living, trying to build your kingdom, or you're trying to build God's. And, and Jesus says it. He concludes this very thing. In verse 33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things that you're worried about, all the things that you're trying to provide for yourself on in your kingdom, will be provided to you. Jesus just has finished up a section of talking about, don't worry, stop being so consumed with all of these things that are just temporary. Instead, seek God's kingdom first, and he will add into you everything that you need. But that is an anti-American gospel, because the American gospel is, you need to build your kingdom, the land of opportunities and dreams. You can be whatever you want 
want to be. And that is true, and that can also run opposite of where God's kingdom is leading you. Like both of those things can be true at the same time. You can be living the American dream, but not the gospel dream. Now, it doesn't mean that the gospel dream means that you should be poor and destitute either, but ultimately comes down to whose kingdom are you building. It's a vision issue. Now, again, as an illustration, this might be terrible, but I just felt like it was kind of something to help prove my point. I don't know who this lady is. I don't know anything about her life. Never heard of her before. Google search brought this up for me. But Aurora uh, Shuck, S-C-H-U-C-K, from Indiana, died in 1989, was a wealthy woman, and her last request is that she would be buried in this way. I'll show this picture. That she would be buried, and she's not the only one. There's been several. Lady was buried in a Ferrari. There's a guy from South Carolina a couple years ago, buried like in his Monte Carlo or something like that, PTO, anyway. But she decided to be buried. Now, I don't know anything about her heart. But without knowing her, I'm going to make a few assumptions, that obviously she held in such high esteem a thing, an image of herself within her own vision and kingdom, that when she died, her thought was, well, I want to be remembered for this. And then I want to tell you that as a, as a Christian, you sit here, I sit here in faith because there are unmarked graves of so many Christian believers who went out into the dark places of the world, spreading the news of Jesus Christ, and you or I have an inheritance into that blessing. I would rather be unmarked, unnamed, in the ground because Jesus is coming back to resurrect me anyway. I don't give a crap where you put me. Like that, that's kind of the difference. And so I think a little bit of it is we need to be careful because we want to kind of sit on the fence and say, well, you know, I'm I'm an American. It's like, exactly. Now, look, the point is not that God wants you to be poor. This church exists because godly people with money and influence obeyed the Lord and helped make it happen. To an extent, guys, that would blow some of your minds. I am so thankful for them. The point is, whether you were wealthy or not, either way, money can be in control of your heart. That's why when we look at the story of the widow, I'm not going to talk about that, but she gave very little, but she gave all she had. And so whether you're giving a little, but it's all you can manage, or you're giving a lot because you have a lot, either way, Giving is the best external indicator of where your heart is. Number two, all of God's purposes on earth are based in the concept of giving. And I think this is one of the more challenging aspects for a lot of us is to to have this mentality. God made creation, and what did he do? He gave it to us. Even when we sinned and rebelled against him and continue to sin and rebel against him. We can't just blame Adam and Eve. It's us too. He gave his son as ransom for the sins of mankind and for you and me. He continually gives his spirit to whoever asks. He gives his blessings even though none of us deserve it. And the crazy thing is to think that even in Jesus' own ministry, the amount of money that had to be flowing through that ministry, he had at least a staff of 12, probably far more. At one point, he sends out almost 80-something disciples to go out and do ministry. All of them were doing ministry full-time. He had wealthy people that would come in and help fund his ministry. But did you know that you're wealthier than Jesus ever was in his life? And when he was crucified, all he had was the clothes on his back, and they took those and gambled over them too. That's who our God is. Jesus didn't die a king in a castle. He died as a criminal on a cross, 
Why? It's because that's exactly what you and I deserve to be. But he gave. Giving is at the core of the gospel. And a Christian is someone who is always looking to give of their time and their resources. Why? Well, because we trust God with the provision. It's not on me. If I'm faithful to the Lord, it's God's responsibility to help take care of me. And he is faithful. That's my conviction, that God is faithful. So, last thing. Last thing. Number three. In Scripture, giving is always connected to revival. Now, I grew up in church. I have heard the word revival thrown out a bunch. But I will have to say, and again, I've learned so much this week. I have... actually last several weeks, I have taken some deep dives into this. I probably could preach until Wednesday if I had to. A lot of information. But I have never heard until recently this idea of revival and its attachment to giving. It was always, we just need more worship. We need more prayer. But scripture tells us that our money is the best external indicator to where our heart actually is because I can pray and still be selfish and I can worship and still think it's all about me. And what God can give me. But money is one of those few times when I say, no, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to give to you. And so what we see in Scripture, three examples. You can go read them on your own time. Under Moses in Exodus 35 and 36, there's a return to giving and revival of God's Spirit. Under David in 1 Chronicles 29, there's a revival of God's Spirit because there's return to giving. Under Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7, same thing happens. And then there's this beautiful passage in Malachi. Malachi is the last book in our, in our Old Testament. And if you read Malachi, it's, it's, he's a prophet, and he's speaking to the, the Jews in exile who are living under Babylon. It's about 400 years before Jesus. Eventually, the Romans would come in and, and conquer the land, and they would be under Rome and all those things like that. Well, Malachi, he, he begins to speak these prophetic things that do come true, and many of them, most of them came true in the early church. But he says this. This is so powerful. He says, bring, he's calling people back. He's calling for revival. Bring the full tent into the storehouse. So there may be food in my house. This is what God is saying. It's God speaking through Malachi. And then God says this the only time. He says, test me. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. God didn't say, test me and pray more. God didn't say, test me and worship more. The only time in Scripture he says, test me, he says, look, bring to me that portion of which I am calling is mine. He doesn't need it from us. You need to give it to him because giving is about your heart. And I think the strongest way I can communicate to you is this way. God does not have your heart if he doesn't have your wallet. He just doesn't. You can show up to church, and I think he can have a, a peace. I'm not saying that like this is the, the only entry. Like, we're saved by, by grace through faith. We, we, don't, we don't have to tithe to get into heaven. But if you truly want to give your heart to the Lord, that includes, among other things, becoming generous. Why do we believe this? Well, because... It's never our money. I think the scariest story when it comes to money is the, is the parable that Jesus told. It's about a rich man. And he's so wealthy, he goes, I know, I am making so much money. I am going to build another barn 
going to build another money shed. I'm like a Scrooge McDuck over here. I'm going to go dive in the amount of money that I have. And then the Lord answered him and says, you fool, your very life will be called tonight. And I just, you know, wonder if we read that, the average middle class person, let's say that, the average one of us, those of us who aren't extraordinarily wealthy, there certainly are some of you, and that's great. But we want to read that and say, ha ha, that's not me. I don't have a money shed. I got a money jar, but I got a money shed. That story's not for me. Absolutely is for you. Because every single one of us are far wealthier than anybody that has ever existed and still does exist in the history of the world right now. And no, you can't afford a new car, but most of you probably can't afford a car. And you can afford not the house that you want, but you can probably afford a house. And I'm not saying there's not real struggles out there, but I do want to tell you that people who tithe regularly typically do not have issues with money. Doesn't mean that they're not going to struggle. Doesn't mean they don't have to say no. Doesn't mean they don't have to still have discipline. But I want to tell you something. It does something to your heart because it unleashes your heart, unhitches it from the love of your money. And look, the truth really is, please hear me, please hear me. You would rather be blessed by God than be rich. That should be the conviction. Now, if the blessings of God allows you to be rich, then praise the Lord. But even if it doesn't, God is still good. God is still working in your favor. And do not, man, do not allow that heart to harden and to center around. So, some really practical application. I am not a financial advisor by any means, but I saw this years ago, and it has helped me tremendously throughout my life. Just as a place to get started. You really need financial counseling. I mean, something we can help you get connected with. Do Dave Ramsey stuff. Dave Ramsey's whole principle is to get out of debt so we can be generous. That's the whole point. Why? Because he's Christian. But here I have, I have 10, $10 bills, which if you can't math well, that's $100. That's what I'm told. So out of 100, for the Christian, it should always be we give 10 first. We tithe 10. And we don't wait until the bills are paid. I know it's easier to do that. Look, for me personally, because I'm, I'm serious, man. This is a conviction of mine. I really believe the Bible is true. I'm going to try to live according to it. And you do what you want to. This is for me, my house. But the first thing that comes out when the payday paycheck hits my bank account is I'm tithing first. I, I will not wait because I do not trust myself. You tithe 10. You save 10. Because look, we live on faith. But living on faith is not... Spending all of your money, and then when the water heater breaks, Lord, what happened? He's like, well, you have been eating out all the time. <laughs> we tithe 10, we save 10, and we live on the rest. And I'm pretty convinced that if most of us, most Americans, but certainly most of us in church, if we did this, the church would never be underfunded. We would have more money in our accounts, and we would live far healthier lives because money doesn't our life. So that's just some helpful advice. I hope that helps somebody there. Next, second thing would be this. You might not be able to feel like you can give a tenth. It's okay. Give a one, a tooth. Really. I find, I don't, I don't check the thing. I don't check any of that. But if, if Shan or somebody goes and checks, there's a tooth in here. I was like, wow. Somebody was really serious. That is, 
Awesome. May the cosmic tooth fairy give you all that you desire at that point. Wow. But give what you can and start there, but build a plan to grow in your generosity. Get your financial house in order so that you may continue to be generous. And look, I think for a lot of us in here, 10 should be the floor, not the ceiling. 10 should be the floor, not the ceiling. I think God is calling most of us to extraordinary generosity, not just to the church. I think it starts at the house of God. I can make that argument. I think we see that in the scripture, but it's beyond that. And we as a church are called to be generous. We're called as a church to help the broken, the orphans, and the widows. And we do. We're good stewards of our finances here. I do want to say one last thing. I didn't say this for service. Um, for the men in the room, they're married. I challenge you to lead in this. I'm not saying it has to come out in your name or anything like that, but uh, don't just say to your wife, well, whatever you think. Don't, don't do that. Don't put the pressure on her because it's so easy that when things get tight, you say, well, I think you're giving too much to the church. No, you own that too. You decide together and say, no, this is what we're comfortable doing. This is what we feel like God has called. Pray about it, but don't just put that on her. You lead. God is calling you to lead. That, that is the standard set forth in Scripture, so don't just put that off on her. And lastly, why do I tithe? Because at the end of the day, I mean, I guess I'm a pastor. But I'm a Christian believer. I'm just a Christian believer. So maybe from my experience, this, this, is, this is my conviction of why I tithe personally. First, I tithe because it's an honor to bring my best to the Lord. It is not something I have to do. It is something I get to do. I tithe because I desire to participate in the building of God's kingdom in my lifetime. God works through the corporate church. God works through the generosity of his people. He has and he will until he returns, and I want to be a part of that. I tithe to increase my own faith in God's promises to me. How can I say increase my faith that I'm not willing to take steps to do so? I tithe to test the Lord in his faithfulness to me and my family, and he has yet to fail me. And ultimately, I tithe because God warns of what the love of money can do to my heart, and it scares me to death. So, I do want to say that as a church, I just feel something in my spirit. We're on the, on the edge of something. That God has been preparing and moving I don't know exactly what that is. I have some thoughts, I have some ideas, some things I feel like the Lord has shown me in some quiet times. But I, I believe that for revival to happen in this house, it isn't just because we're showing up for prayer nights, which we're going to have. It isn't because we're all singing a little louder in worship. I hope, hope you would. But it's because we say, God, there is nothing else king of my heart but you. And that is my Conviction. And I think God is ready and willing and waiting to unleash his spirit in a new way here and now. And I hope you join me in that. I hope you do. Will you guys stay with me? I want to close this in prayer. We're going to sing one final, just the tag of the song that we sang a minute ago. I hope you stay and, and, and just respond and worship the Lord with me. Always the altar and the crosses are available. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this wisdom that you placed in Scripture. Help, help nobody in this room, help no one, or I'm sorry, help every one of us to unhitch 
our heart and life to our money. May we be free of that. May our conviction be that you are good and faithful and that we are just conduits of generosity to the world around us. It's never been ours. It's always been yours. Your church, we're your people. The very breath in our lungs is yours. Help us to be good stewards of all that we have and to be generous with it. In the name of Jesus, I pray.